0: Amen. Please be seated. Now it's been our privilege to have Robin Sidsurf here with us from Chalmers Church in Edinburgh. We have a lot of connections with that church. Um, He's been here over the weekend, and I have to say that yesterday was one of the most um, challenging days I've ever experienced in terms of what God was saying through His servant and. It's just been tremendous. Uh, I thank the Lord for bringing Robin uh, to Chalmers and for the work that that church is doing throughout Scotland and through the Boner Trust. Uh, If you were unable to be here yesterday or on Friday, uh, I don't think we're we're not going to put the talks up online but you could ask and we'll see if we have a recording that we can give to you. Or uh, there are notes as well, very extensive notes that Robin brought and we'd be quite happy to share those with you. I'm asking Robin if he will just come and finish off, well, we finish off the weekend with communion this evening, but if he'll finish off his part anyway by bringing God's word to us just now. So Robin, please.
1: Thank you very much, uh, David. Let me just begin by saying um, how much I uh, love this church. I mean, I get to go away and do bits and pieces here and there, and I don't always enjoy it. But I really have enjoyed coming here. Why is it that I love the church here? I love Chalmers just a little bit more, which is important. Is it because uh, we had Craig for two years and then Amy and Andy for six and then Kyrene? So of course there is a strong uh, connection uh, we have. What I love is your uh, spontaneity, your diversity, your uh, realness, that's not a word, but it kind of sounds like what I'm describing. I love it when uh, yesterday in some of these sessions we did, which were on serious stuff, it was like Oxford Circus. <laughs> kind of seven exits, an entrance to the tube station. People running all over the place. I love it because it's like a family. Now you have a big challenge on your hands as the church uh, gets uh, bigger. One day perhaps they might reintroduce the pulpit. And the reason that pulpits were in churches like this is that the pulpit kind of reached out and touched you guys up there. That's why they were there. Wouldn't that be great? Great if building projects in Scotland had to reintroduce pulpits not because of nostalgia nor history nor aesthetics but out of need and it's wonderful to see the growth in your church what we've looked at over this weekend is the strange complexity of how in an encouraging church with so many signs of life There can be so much discouragement. The strange complexity or paradox that gospel growth brings discouragement. And some of the reasons for that is that with joy in the Christian life, there is always cost, with gospel vitality, there is always spiritual opposition. I think I have become more and more conscious in ministry in Scotland in the days in which we live of supernatural progress and supernatural opposition. Real gospel, first century, New Testament dynamic. And there is something profoundly reassuring about that. That Jesus Christ meant what he said when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There is something profoundly reassuring and I hope you have been reassured. You do need to build a pulpit, David. It's really necessary now up here. (laughs) I hope I haven't said something that's going to cause problems I hope you've been profoundly reassured that the letter of 1 Thessalonians, which is a real letter written to a real living church, describes much of what is happening here. And that is a huge encouragement to any church when the Bible describes what's going on in the ordinariness of our lives, in a local church, in a city in a time that is becoming much more like the first century. We have lived for generations in Scotland in abnormal times. We are returning to normal times for the church. And normal times are times when it gets tougher and when the gospel begins to thrive so my prediction for you as a church as you continue to grow is more and more joy and more and more cost and more and more progress and more and more flack and more and more fellowship and more and more risks of disunity And more need to discern what it is you do for this city and this nation and what it is others should do and you shouldn't do. I think as you look back on the history of St. Peter's, the recent history, the last 20 years, how over these years, in a number of ways, the devil sought to take this church down or take this church out Or take its leader out of this world. And yet here we are. And my challenge to you is, what good can you do to the cause of the gospel in this country? As I look in from the outside and see a resource-rich church, now resource-rich in the Bible doesn't mean money. Resource rich means not even giftedness. Resource rich means spirituality or life or, 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 or being alive to Jesus. And you are such a church. And I want to challenge you or invite you for the sake of the gospel in this country to really prayerfully discern what it is you need to do. Because Scotland is as dark and as bleak as it has ever been in its history. The world looks on on the church in this country and holds weekend prayer meetings for it. For example, the church in South Korea, which owes its existence to the Presbyterian churches here. Scotland is the most secular state in Europe. The conversion rate amongst white British people, and in particular, white British men, is virtually nil. Were it not for the big London churches and the influx of students and people from the eastern side of the globe, the conversion rates full stop in our country would be virtually nil. Churches are dying by the minute and coming alive by the minute. That's the reality. And yet I look out on a church that's alive to the gospel, gloriously flee of clutter, perhaps needing more organization and structure to harness growth. If I were you, I would take time out a weekend to pray And to seek God's guidance as to what you can do for the church in Scotland. Now, we have been in 1 Thessalonians, uh, real encouragement. Uh, We have begun Friday night, which seems a long time ago. Uh, never mention, as I mentioned on Friday night, problems with your car. Um, that led to a huge number of anxious conversations such that I changed cars <laughs> and borrowed a car to come up with the other day, so all is well. Uh, we looked at Real Authentic Church and Leadership, chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 16, and uh, saw that uh, the, the marks of real church and they are never the marks that make churches grow fastest. They're never the marks that make a church most impressive. But when the Bible describes what goes on in a local church and you happen to be in that local church, that's great. Now I suspect a, a number of you in your hearts are thinking it's not really like that here. And I think you are right, and the exhortational language in Thessalonians is you are doing this, but do it more and more. That's the language of Thessalonians. You're right, and it will never be what you would love it to be. So hear the encouragements and the exhortations together. You are what the Bible describes... As a real church. And then chapter 2, verse 17 to 313 real commitment to one another. The kind of committed, affectionate longing for one another. Now, uh, I was greeted by uh, a man with a sense of humor when I came in this morning, and he said to me, There's a cold snap coming on. (laughs) And uh, for those of you who weren't here yesterday, Uh, I suggested that uh, a question after the sermon, like, how are you really in your Christian life? Or what can I pray for you? You just look, you look sad. It's a little bit better than, have you heard, there's a cold snap coming on. And of course, everybody is asking each other about the cold snap this morning. I mean, that's such an obvious thing to say, but I mean, it's astonishing how many people, as I greet them at the door of the church, I mean, not many, but you only hear these conversations, say to me, oh, it's a little chilly. We've only been talking about something like everlasting life. Or... How joy can seek you through the deepest pain it's a little chilly in your heart and these real committed affectionate conversations for one another real concern to see each other grow uh, Paul describes himself as a mother with a child as a father disciplining his son and then, in the middle of this warm, loving, encouraging letter, we get this section in chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, about purity, sexual immorality, the great need for the church to be distinctive in that area. And that's striking. And I don't think that... I've ever been able to expound a passage like that like I did yesterday, and the reason for that was because we spent the morning on the bit that comes before. So we just heard Paul speaking as an affectionate mother and as a as a father, and then he turns to this stuff when he talks about God as the Avenger God. Be distinctive as a community. And my encouragement to you as a church is to seek after corporate godliness. And the way to do that is the power of one, you. The greatest gift somebody once said that I can give to my congregation is my personal godliness. Some of you knew who said that. If not, ask somebody else. If I tell you, you will all uh, lapse into nostalgia. That's not a nostalgic comment. It's true now. The greatest gift you can give to the person in this church that you sit beside is your personal godliness. For you are godly, the more like Jesus you are, the more all the things that make a church united and strong and visionary will be there. And then he finishes uh, up with two uh, great sections. One on Real Christian Hope, chapter 4, verse 13, to chapter 5, verse uh, 11. And I am clock-watching, don't worry, I've got 35 minutes. Is that right, David? There or thereabouts. Um, I went on far too long yesterday afternoon, so Crawford, uh, God bless you, Crawford. That was a wonderful prayer. That blessed my heart, just... It really did. I mean, what an encouragement to hear somebody saying that they pray about praying in church. Anyway, Crawford was supposed to interview me at the end of yesterday, but uh, I went on rather long, so he couldn't, and that session was dropped. <laughs> Never mind. At Real Christian Hope, chapter 4, verse 13 to 511. We couldn't do that. Um, Andy Robertson has got a great sermon on that on the Chalmers website, so I encourage you to listen to that. And we finish up with uh, the end of the letter, and Paul says 21 things in the last bit of the letter. And I love the ends of the New Testament letters, it all comes tumbling out, and God's inspiration allows it to come tumbling out, not just in sets of three, although 21 is seven times three And there's a spontaneity in God's inspiration sometimes in these New Testament letters. And here it is at the end of the letter, chapter five, verse 12 through 28. So let me read the end of the letter, chapter five, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace amongst yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Well, let me just ask for God's help. Father, uh, we've uh, waggled on the tea again, and maybe these things are important to say, but the most important thing that needs to be said is what your word says. And So we pray that in these few minutes, you would speak through your word to this church, to this congregation, that the relationships in this church might be right and true and strong. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, uh, Paul, in these verses, the main thing he does is he focuses on three relationships. Or well, that's what I'm going to pick out uh, from the longer section. So he speaks about the right relationship between a congregation. And its leaders, the elders. And then he speaks about the right relationship, right relationships with one another in the church uh, family. And he finishes with a right relationship with the Lord Jesus. So, firstly, a right relationship with the leaders, verses 12 to 13. Let me read them again. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love. Because of their work, be it peace among yourselves. And Paul is speaking here to the members of the church, exhorting them to respect their leaders and esteem them highly in love and therefore implicitly he is speaking to the leaders of the church as to how they should lead and thus merit their respects, esteem, and love. Who are the leaders of the church? The elders. David and Sinclair are, are what I think All means, in 1 Timothy 5.17, as those among you who devote themselves to the public teaching of Scripture, what we call ministers, but all elders are required to be able to teach and to be godly. Elders lead churches. We ask you to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. There might be just a, a smidgen of a leaning towards the people who labor in preaching and teaching, the people we call ministers. But Paul encompasses within that, respect those who have authority over you in uh, the Lord. In 1 Timothy uh, 5:17, Paul says, uh, uh, "Let those who rule well be worthy of your respect." So there's a double thing going on here. It's respect, acknowledge, pray for the leaders in the church, but leaders lead well. In the New Testament, uh, leaders, I think, are elders. uh, I think in our Presbyterian structures, we're not far away with elders and deacons and and ministers. I think if you're an Anglican, it's quite complicated to get there. I'm not quite sure what a PCC is in any way. We're not Anglicans, we're Presbyterians, so we understand the language. What does respect them mean? It means to acknowledge, I mean it's not respect as in, oh I respect him. It is to acknowledge that God has appointed that office and them to that office as under shepherds of his son. It is to acknowledge the God-givenness of elders in the life of a local church. It is to acknowledge God's plan for his church that local churches are to have leaders who are elders and that we are to submit to their leadership and oversight. That does not mean to say that elders are not to be questioned. So keep questioning them. If, for example, decisions taken are unbiblical, they should be questioned. If I teach in my congregation what is not in the Bible, I should be questioned for that. Sometimes elders make decisions and lead a church in a particular direction that is not unbiblical, it's just not sensible, it's just not wise, the wrong time, the wrong way to go about it. And just let me caveat that, that humanly speaking, the wrong decision at the wrong time, don't Don't make the decision about right and wrong on a decision using worldly or human categories. Even though God does work through our sanctified common senses. So we have just moved into a new building which cost 2.4 million pounds. When you add them both together, that's a lot of money. And the congregation immediately conscious of the danger of beginning to be complacent have decided to plant a church. And the person who was most cautious was the minister. But it's right. So that's not wise, humanly, but it's right for a whole range of reasons that I could unpack for you. But, but sometimes elders, and we have, and I have as minister, made the wrong decision. The wrong time, the wrong way. And you need to question that. One of the things that's helped me most in Chalmers is a dialogue between me and the elders. I mean, there was a long period of time where I didn't really know what they thought because they did what I said (laughs) because that's how it's always been done. And when I'd begun to listen to what they thought, then that was great. And dialogue with the the congregation, constant dialogue, discussion, people uh, uh, sharing their views. Now, esteem them as your leaders very highly in love. I mean, that's a striking phrase, isn't it? Esteem them very highly in love. Now, let me encourage you to think of those in leadership in this church. Warts and all. And they do have warts and all. Do you esteem them very highly in love? Now, let me turn to the leaders. What does God require of you? First, hard work. Respect those, verse 12, who labor among you, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Hard work labor. Christian leadership is sustainable sacrifice. Not unsustainable sacrifice, but sustainable sacrifice. Hard work labor should be esteemed in love. The word minister means servant. Respect them if they work hard to lead the church. Respect them if they put in the hours for the work of the gospel. But only respect them, esteem them, and love them if they do it with the right motivation. Just turn back to chapter 1 and verse 3. Paul is been telling them what he has been praying for them. Remember before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's that word labor, and it's a labor of love. The kind of leaders you are to respect are those who work hard among you because they love you. And you're not as lovable as you think. You're not. And your leaders are not as lovable as they think. And yet they are to be esteemed very highly in love. And you leaders are to labor in love for God's people. And the big challenge you have as a church as you grow bigger is how do you esteem your leaders in love when some of you don't even know who they are? And How do you as leaders... Labour in love when you don't know who some of them are. There's the challenge. And there are ways to meet that challenge. Labour in love. The kind of leaders you are to respect are those who work hard among you because they love you. Do you, as a congregation, feel and know the love of your leaders? If not, ask them why. And do you as a congregation esteem your leaders very highly in love? A right attitude, uh, a labour of uh, love. I think if a Christian minister or a Christian elder no longer loves the congregation where they serve, they should leave. It doesn't mean to say that they're a bad leader, but they should just leave. I wonder if some of the translations in ministry from one church to another, there's all sorts of reasons for that. You know, the Lord has told me, or uh, I can't uh, take this church any further, whatever that means. <laughs> I wonder if that relationship perhaps has gone. And that relationship is so uh, vital. You know, I love the congregation that I serve uh, very, very, very dearly. I really do. And the times of my ministry, which have been the riskiest, is when I have become cynical and critical of them that's nothing that's not the same as admonishing and all that stuff that's biblical it's just cynicism and, and when have I become like that as a leader when have I lost that love well perhaps some of the occasions have been when the congregation has lost their desire to value me very highly in love it's both ways both ways uh, respect leaders who lead you by love and uh, notice also verse 12 respect leaders who lead you in the lord what does that mean it means elders who are absolutely clear that St Peter's church is not theirs it is Jesus church elders are under under shepherds of the chief shepherd the lord Jesus good leadership recognizes that good leaders serve and love the Lord Jesus. How do you know if they lead you in the Lord? Because they are humble and servant hearted. And often fragile. It's true I think that. Christian leaders are not normally self confident. Might, you might think they are. When they stand up here behind a lectern. That's just because God has given them the gift of the gab. And if he hasn't given them the gift of the gab. They shouldn't be up here. Godliness. Knowledge, the gift of the gab. It's the best talk I've ever heard on the characteristics of the Christian leader. But are they humble? The third mark of Christian leadership, Paul highlights, is that they admonish you. You see that at the end of verse 12. Given what we have read in the letter, particularly the first half of chapter four, there was stuff in the church in Thessalonica that needed sorting. People were living in a way that is contrary to the word of God And we can assume that the leaders in the church in Thessalonica had admonished them, had corrected them, told them it was wrong. It is not easy for a leader to admonish somebody in the Lord, but it's the right thing. It's a good thing to do for the sake of someone's walk with uh, the Lord. The word admonish is used all the way through the New Testament alongside the word teach. Teach, admonish, teach, admonish. Do your leaders admonish you? Do your leaders worry for you when you aren't here? I was saying, it, I think on Friday night, that one of the greatest blessings to ministers this side of eternity is that people, for some strange reason, always sit in the same seats. I mean, I bet you sit in the same seat every week. You do, don't you? (laughs) You do. And if you were at our church, you sit in that particular part of the room. It's kind of a GPS thing that makes you sit there. And it means that people like me know you're not here. That's fine when your church is 100 people. How do you do it when the church is three or 400 people? If your leaders are after you, I mean, the Lord Jesus will be after you. Yes, the Lord Jesus is concerned for the 99 who are safely in the fold, but he is more concerned for the one who is not. Leaders who admonish and teach. If you come along to church Sunday by Sunday and you hear simply affirmation, without admonishing there's something wrong if you hear admonishing whether affirmation there's something wrong balance is the hardest thing to find that's why you want your leaders to teach the bible because the bible balances all these things and what is good leadership godly leadership and respect for that leadership in a church result in unity the end of verse 13 you see it there be at peace amongst what is the most precious thing in a church? Unity. What happens when St. Peter's church is unhappy and disunited? Well, I guarantee if that is the case, you will not be focused on anything outside these walls. One of the devil's great strategies is to disunite churches so that churches, so if I were the devil and I'm not... I would want to disunite you in the next five years as you discern what impact you can make like the church in Thessalonica whose gospel witness rang out through the region. I want to disunite you to make you introverted, to sort out your problems. And the way to stop that, Paul says, is to esteem your leaders very highly in love and for leaders to lead by hard work in the Lord as servants and to teach and admonish. And a united church, the devil cannot find a crack to get in. Now, uh, much more quickly, how many times have preachers said that? Now my second point, much more briefly. Has to be much more briefly. I know, I'm well aware that if, if, I, if this was David up here and he went on too long, you would tell him. But because I'm a visiting preacher, you wouldn't, but you would eat me alive over lunch if you weren't talking about the cold snap. The second key relationship is with one another. Verses 14 and 15. They're wonderful, wonderful verses. Uh, Our assistant minister in church, uh, Roger, um, every time he meets up with a small group leader to give them feedback on their Bible studies, he gives them this verse on a card for how they care for those in their small group. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, Be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Why was Crawford's prayer a blessing to us? Because in his prayer he did all these things. And why is a prayer that touches on all these things a blessing to us? Because God inspires us to do all these things because these are the things we need to do. This is what affectionate, committed care for one another means. Here's the list. Here's the list. I mean, if you're really practically minded, put these things in your diary and do something under each of the headings once a week. It's not wrong to do that. And he is speaking here to everybody in the church, not just the leaders, everybody in the church here. What does it mean? Admonish the idol. The word admonish is the same as verse 12. The reference to the idol may be to that group of people in the church in Thessalonica who have uh, given up their work I think that may be the case with misguided motivations and we're depending on others. Sponging off the church would be a good way of describing that. Uh, I think we should apply it more generally. It's true of many churches that, that 10% do 90% of the work. It's true of a living church that 40% do 90% of the work. Um, it's true of a church before it gets to 40% do 90% that the 10% hold on to the work. Yeah, and that's just as much a danger. I think that the people who say everybody else is doing nothing often need to be the people who let go. Like me, in particular, as the minister. Because everything I was ever told when I trained to be a minister is you're the minister. Let's wait till the minister comes so we can do anything. That still rumbles. Still rumbles in ministers' hearts and in congregations' hearts, admonishing uh, the idol. I had a great question yesterday from somebody. How is it that, that, that you, you get a church, enough people to do stuff? I mean, Amy and Craig are great. Don't tell them I said this. But she was bouncing on that trampoline yesterday. She's having twins When I, when I, they're great and they're gift and they, I watch them doing loads of stuff but you know they can't do that in the future in quite the same way even now she shouldn't be bouncing on a trampoline but that's just Amy isn't it the only person ever in my wedding address Amy who, who halfway through it disagreed with what I was saying <laughs> out loud <laughs> and what to say after that don't tell them I said any of that. I mean, it's great when people like Amy and Craig are away, just for you to think what a blessing they are, what a godly blessing they are to you as a church. I think the question was, I think the answer often in churches: how do you get gaps plugged? Is that you sit down with people and you discern what their gifts are, and you make them serve for God as gifted to them. Amen to that. That's for about twenty five percent of what needs done in a church. The other seventy five percent we can all do it. So we should all do a bit of that as well. I think that's a great answer from whoever it was who gave me that. Now we need to so for example, if I stack the chairs, people in the church often moan at me and say, Why are you moaning at me? I like stacking chairs. If I'm stacking chairs so that I can't preach, then they should moan at me. But it's okay to stack chairs because it needs stacking. So everybody in the church serves in some of these ways. And then we worry about what is it that I'm particularly gifted to do. That was a great answer, so thank you for that. And the fact that everybody is nodding means it was the right answer. Admonishing the idle, encouraging the faint hearted. Uh, Here I think Paul may be referring to people in the church family who have doubts or lack assurance. Encouraging them with the truth of God's word. Read the word of God with them, read the promises in the word of God to them, send them a text, an email, meet them for a coffee. Much better than sending a text or an email or what you young ones do, Snapchat. I have no idea what that is. My children do it. And if they were in church, they would then despair. Dad, what are you talking about? Go and see them. Go and talk to them. You cannot love someone with a text message. You just can't. You can't grow as a Christian by listening to podcasts from some super whiz preacher from the other side of the world. They help you grow as a Christian, but you grow as a Christian in a living church where you admonish one another and you encourage the faint hearted and you help the weak. People who are weak spiritually, people who are sick and dying. I went home last night, partly because I sleep better in my own bed, because I'm getting old. But I really went home last night so I could go and see Doug and Sydney, who's Doug's mum dropped dead, aged 58, with a catastrophic aneurysm this week. And what did I find when I went into their house last night? And he got a great big ministerial hug. I found the house full of their friends who had come round, as they said, to put their foot in it and say all the wrong things. Like, I'm sorry your mum has died. It must be hard. Is that not better, though, than being at a distance and carefully working out what we should say and write? And they brought their tea as well. That was a huge encouragement to me. To stumble on their home. And find it full of people. Help the weak. What a wonderful exhortation. Help the weak. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. Never were truer words spoken when it comes to faith and discipleship. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. That speaks for itself. or people bearing grudges against others? Or even worse, getting their own backs up. Snuff it out. Snuff it out. That's what the Lord's Supper allows you to snuff out. You know, such an important part of the Lord's Supper is to make peace with one another. It's often forgotten. Everything that happens in church life happens vertically and horizontally. You know, it's God and each other. And always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. It's quite a list, isn't it? Remember, Paul is urging everyone in the church family to take this stuff on board. Therefore, for ministers, elders, and for us all. Now, our time has gone, and uh, I want to stop and just read the last bit of the letter. Verses 16 to 22 are about our right relationship with the Lord Jesus. They are verses that contain complex stuff about uh, prophecy and quenching the Spirit. Um, that's something for David or Sinclair to deal with over 30 or 40 minutes. I could have done it, would have done it, but I don't want to do it lightly. Or, or, glibly just let me encourage you in this that you are not as a church quenching the Holy Spirit I think the Holy Spirit is alive and unfettered in your congregation I think we will see in the years that lie ahead much much more evidence of supernatural manifestations of the work of the Spirit we have seen in Chalmers over the past few years extraordinary coincidences so one example of that I had a very difficult conversation a few weeks ago and it was quite destructive and quite discouraging for me and I met somebody the next day in the street who I know who had a letter for me because they wanted to encourage me and he gave it to me on the street and the letter described what it was I needed encouraged in and he didn't have any idea all these things are that's a tiny thing I mean that's so boring isn't it why did I tell you that because that's how God works (laughs) What a boring illustration that was. (laughs) That's real though, isn't it? And and we'll see that more and more and we will see we will see much, much, much more opposition. And Sundays 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 will be places of haven and rest and life and joy and warmth. Let me uh, finish with reading the wonderful uh, end to the, the letter. Verse 23. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, after all that he said about living distinctively, he asks that God will sanctify you completely. The God of peace. And then he says, Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Here's the tough forensic, Apostle Paul. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Well, let's pray. Father God, we pray that some, something of, the riches of your word this morning will have come home to our hearts and that in this congregation here in St. Peter's the relationship between congregation and leaders would be one of richness esteem them very highly in love and to elders labor in love labor in the Lord. Teach and admonish. We pray, Lord, for that list of right relationships with one another. We pray that the character of the prayer that Crawford prayed would be the atmosphere of the daily lives of the people in this fellowship. Encouraging the faint-hearted. Helping the weak. Exhorting one another to graft and do stuff that needs done. And always remembering the power of one. What can I do? Who can I be to them? And Lord, we pray that supremely, that this church family would have a right relationship with the Lord Jesus. We pray that no one here would become more devoted to the work of the Lord than to the Lord himself. We pray that this church family, corporately and individually, would know what it is to love the Lord with heart, soul, mind and strength. And Lord, give them discernment as to how they can bless this city and this nation best with the resources and life that you have granted to them. For we pray in Jesus' name and with thanks. Amen.